Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. That. But if you have your Bibles now, look at uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I'd like to conclude this chapter with you this morning. But as we have seen, the book of Hebrews, at least as we've launched into this, passage, into this section, into this book, uh, is a remarkable book. It's an incredibly theologically astute book. It's wonderfully crafted and written. And it is certainly uh, one that is meant to draw our attention fully and completely to the superiority of our Messiah. Why is it that he is taking center stage? Why is it that he ought to be the one that is always obeyed? Why is it that he's the one that we ought to always remember is before us whenever we do anything, think anything, desire anything, or engage in anything? He is front and center. And why is it that the Messiah of Israel would take such a prominent place in our understanding? You know, when you interact with Jewish people, you find, okay, we talk about the Messiah, but, uh, and the Messiah is all important to the Jewish people, but he is not as important as Yeshua the Messiah is to you and I. The Messiah in Jewish thought is pivotal, critical, important, but not central to Jewish thought. And perhaps Uh, That's a mistake on their part. But the writer to the Hebrews does not want us to forget how critical Messiah is. Not just with respect to what he has accomplished as we look back on that, but even as the writers of the Hebrew Scriptures has written about him and looked forward to his coming. Because the entirety of God's word is about him. The entirety of the Scriptures is meant to draw our attention to him. From the very first book, the book of Genesis, the seed of the woman would come and destroy the, and crush the head of the serpent, to the very end, as John prays, even so, come Lord Yeshua. He's at the front end and the back end, and he's everywhere in between. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And in reality, as I said before, he's before the first and he's after the last. He is critical to us and he is central. And the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand that. As he opens his book, he tells us God is speaking to us. God has, is not only speaking, but he has always spoken to us. 
Our problem is we're not listening to him. The problem is not that God isn't speaking. The problem is we're not hearing him. And the reason we're not hearing him is twofold. On the one hand, there's sin that has deafened us to the voice of God. We can say blinded us to the realities of God's presence, but he has, it has deafened us to his voice. And the other problem is we're not listening to the right voices even when we can hear. And so the voice of God that we need to be listening to is the voice of him expressed through the Messiah of Israel. Oh, indeed, the Lord in times past, the writer says, in various ways and various times has spoken to us by the prophets. In fact, the word by is not even in the Greek. It simply says has spoken to us in prophets. It's a way of saying God's voice has been a prophetical voice. It's been a revelatory voice given to us through his spokespersons, whoever they might be, in various times and in various ways. Sometimes his spokespersons have not been people. Sometimes they've been events like the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, like the parting of the Red Sea, like the thunder and lightning that hovered over the mountain when God appeared. God speaks in a variety of ways. Sometimes his voice is loud and thunderous. Sometimes it's a still small voice, as in the case of Elijah, who heard him as such. So his voice takes on a variety of means and a variety of contexts in a variety of times. But he has always spoken, but particularly now in these last days, God has spoken to us in son. The son of God is the voice of God preeminently, he's telling us. And it's not just the voice of God, but it's the life of or I should say the voice of Yeshua, the voice of Messiah, but it's the life of Messiah. It's the entirety of the reality of Messiah, who he is, what he's accomplished, what he's taught, and how he's behaved. All of that is the voice of God to us, the writer is telling us. And of course, the voice of God took on unique soundings when Yeshua was particularly lifted up in our midst. So when he was immersed in Matthew chapter 3, we hear the voice of God who says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the Mount of the Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when the Lord is transfigured in all of his glory, the Lord says, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And then later in John chapter 12, the Lord says, Now is the time for you to glorify me. And he says, I have both glorified you and, uh, and something else. But in John chapter 12, I think it's verse 28. But the point is God's voice is speaking, but we're not hearing it properly. And then he tells us that the voice of Messiah is a voice we must listen to because the voice is coming from one who is characterized in seven ways. In the very first few verses, he tells us seven things about the Messiah that sets him apart from all others. And if you take a look at that with me just very quickly, he says, number one, he is the heir of all things. He's not just one to whom is bequested things, but he's the one to whom the things of the earth and the world belong naturally because he's a family member of God, which speaks of his deity and his eternality. So not only is he the one who's the heir of all things, he's also the one through whom he also created the ages, the world. But the word here is not cosmos, universe. It's ionos, which is the word for ages. He has created time, 
and space. He's created all of the events and he oversees everything that transpires. Not only is the one who created the ages, but he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the outshining of the glory of God. He's the outradiancing of the radiance of God. He's the Shekinah glory, as it were, personified. He is the exact imprint of the very character and nature of God. This is the word that's used for the printing and minting of coins. So that as a coin was created and then it was cast into a particular metal, the metal then would take on the exact image of the thing that was pressed upon it. He's saying Yeshua is the exact image of the character of God. Everything that is true about God with regard regard to God's nature is true of Yeshua himself. He not only is this, but he's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one that holds it all together. And he does this without a whole lot of effort. He just has to say, stay together, it stays together. He could say, fall apart, and it falls apart. He can just speak whatever he wants to speak, and it will be. He could say, even in his humanity, peace be still, and the storms are calmed. He can say, rise up and walk, and the lame will rise up and walk. He will say to those entombed to come forth, and they come forth because of the word of power that he speaks. This is just like Genesis when it says, and the Lord said, let there be, and it was. When Yeshua says, let it be, it is because he speaks by the word of power. But not only this. He's telling us we should listen to him because of all of these things, but also because he's the one who made purification for sins. He's our redeemer. He paid the price for our sins, and he not only paid the price for it, but he empowers a cleansing, transformative work that actually makes us different than what we were once before. I know some of us look at each other and say, well, you've got a long ways to go. But if they only knew, they would be saying, man, you've come a really long way, you know. I know I think that often, you know, when I'm trying to remember. But I also have to say this. A lot of my past, as I look back, is a real distant memory, too. It's almost like, really, did I once say that? I can't imagine me ever saying that, but I'm sure I could have said that. But it's a distant memory, you know, and there are some things I absolutely can't remember that I'm so glad I can't remember about the things that happened in my life. So he transforms us and he cleanses us. He takes that stuff from us and dispels it from us. We not only stand positionally right with God, we not only have what is referred to as the imputed righteousness of Messiah that is conveyed to us, his righteousness with us, within us, but then by our actions, our thoughts, and our attitudes, it becomes something of our own righteousness. I mean, it's his, but it's us too. And so that transformation is a cleansing thing as well as a forgiving thing. But he's the one that made purification for sins. And then it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so God accepted everything that he has done. And he is equivalent to him, therefore can sit at his right hand. And therefore he's completed the work. 
He no longer stands performing, but rather he sits. On occasion he stands, such as when Stephen is dying. It says in Acts chapter 7 that he saw the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father, ready to greet him, to embrace him, and to bring him unto himself. That's the kind of Messiah we serve. That's why he is central to everything. In Jewish thought, they don't have this kind of idea of Messiah. But in biblical thought, it's there. And certainly the New Covenant writers, such as this writer, is trying to help us understand all that. So now take a look with me. He says in verse 4 that he, as a result, has become much superior to the angels with regard to his name, he said. When you look at Revelation chapter 19, it says that when the Lord returned, that one who is called faithful and true in Revelation 19, it says that he has a name that no one knows but he himself. A name superior to all names. And when you look at Paul in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that he is given a name that is above every name. And at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and say, Yeshua is Lord. So what is this name? In Revelation 19, no one knows it but him. In Philippians chapter 2, it's Yeshua. In Philippians chapter 2, it's Lord, Kurios, the sacred name of God. I suppose any one of those will do, but there is a name that is superior in every respect. What's also neat about this, if you look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, I'll say, and chapter 2, I think it's around verse 10, the Lord says, those who persevere, those who overcome, will be given a name that no one will know but you yourself. A name that God will give to you that only you will know, just like the Lord has a name that no one knows but he himself. But if you look at Revelation chapter 3, it says, not only will we have a new name, we will have the name of God put on us. Check that one out. That God's name will be ascribed to us as well. And here we're told that this one, Yeshua, has a name that is above every name and therefore is much superior, first of all, to the angels. The angels, of course, are superior beings. We are created lower, a little lower than the angels. They were not, however, created in the image of God, though we were. So that's a privilege that we have. But they are powerful beings. And he tells us a number of ways in which Yeshua is superior to the angels. He gave us seven descriptions of Messiah before. Now he gives us seven passages of scripture that speak of his superiority to angels. So let's just see if we can take a look at them. Give me about 10 minutes, 10 minutes. So take a look at chapter one. First of all, verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today? I have begotten you. He's quoting from Psalm two, verse seven, the second Psalm. Now, if you would turn to the second Psalm very, very quickly, because I only have Nine minutes. <laughs> no, no. Ten minutes. There you go. Psalm, the second psalm. And notice how this breaks down. First of all, in verses one to three, we have the voice of the nations. And they say in verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and let's cast away their cords from us. In verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, anointed one. So right away, we're introduced to the Messiah of Israel, you know, against the Lord and against Mashiach, against the anointed one. Now, is this the king of Israel? I don't think so. And you'll see why. But in in verse three, the nations of the earth are speaking. But then look at verse four through six. God speaks. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's the voice of God. The nations laugh at God and his Messiah. But God says, you're not the ones to be laughing because judgment will fall. And I have set the decree. I've set my Lord uh, or my king on the throne on my holy hill of Zion. Now you look at verses 7 through 9. Now you have the Messiah speak. Look what he says. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the me is speaking, who is the one to whom the Lord is speaking? It is the anointed one who is with him. And what does he say to him? He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This idea of begetting doesn't mean I've given birth to. But now what he's saying is that you have come to fruition in being all that you are to be as the son of God, as the king of Israel, as the Messiah of Israel. This is a moment of exaltation. That's why we can't look at this, but you can take note of it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, it's there that I believe it's Paul who makes reference to this passage when speaking of the resurrection of Yeshua. Because at the resurrection of Yeshua, the entire redemptive ministry of the Messiah is accepted and is recognized as being accomplished in accordance with the Lord's will. So he says here, I have set my king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And look what he says. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. What you inherit. That's what he, the writer to the Hebrews said just a few verses before. So now he's telling us. First of all, to which of the angels did he ever call them my son? No angels are called a son of God or the son of God. There's only reference to the angels being referred to as sons, plural, of God. Such as in Job chapter 1, for example. But in no other place do you find angels so addressed. So who is he addressing? And the writer to the Hebrews is telling us he's speaking about Messiah. Why? Because he's given the nations as his inheritance. No king of Israel has given the nations for his inheritance. David was not given the nations for his inheritance. In fact, he says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so when you come to the last three verses of this passage... You have the psalmist speaking, and some believe it may be the Spirit of God. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and pay homage, kiss, worship the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The one we are to worship is only the Messiah of Israel. So the writer to the Hebrews, he's looking at the Hebrew scriptures and he's telling us that Yeshua is superior to the angels because he's the one who will inherit the nations of the earth. And he is the one who is to be worshipped, kissed, acknowledged, bowed before. The second passage he looks at, look at this one. He says in verse, or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. We could spend a whole hour on this, but he's quoting from the promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. And you have to look at those two passages because there are distinctions between them. But in both of them, they, the promise is given that David would have a son who would sit on his throne forever. That he would have a throne and a kingdom 
forever and a dynasty, an offspring. Those are three key themes that come up in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. And by the way, it's the exact same expression the angel Gabriel shares with Mary in Luke chapter 1 when he tells Mary that the child that she will give birth to will inherit the promises of David. They're really fascinating passages. But in 1 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, there are a number of distinctions. And I wish I could just show them to you. But one of those distinctions is that in 2 Samuel 7, we're told that a son will come from David's own body. In 1 Chronicles 17, it says a son will become one of the offspring of David's descendants. So in 1 Chronicles, it's a distant son. In 2 Samuel, it's an immediate son. In 2 Samuel, there's a statement that if he disobeys me, I will chastise him. In 1 Chronicles 17, that phrase is excluded. The implication is that the immediate son of David would be one who would need to be chastised. Whereas in 1 Chronicles 17, the distant son of David would not need to be chastised because he would never be disobedient. And then the third thing that's very interesting is in 2 Samuel, it says, your kingdom, your house, and your throne will be established. But in 1 Chronicles 17, it says, my kingdom, my house, and my throne will be established. It's almost as if 1 Chronicles is about the Messianic age and 2 Samuel is about the Davidic kingdom. 2 Samuel is about Solomon. 1 Chronicles is about the Messiah. So that when you look at Hebrews, he says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. He's playing on the sonship idea and the kingship idea and the uniqueness of the Messiah over angels because no other angel would be a king only the Messiah himself. Now look at this third passage. He quotes from Deuteronomy and he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is taken from like Deuteronomy 32. This is just before the passage tells us that angels were intermediaries by which the law was given to Moses, but Moses was never told to worship any of the angels that would give him the law of Moses. So who are the ones who are to worship? Who is the one who is to be worshipped by the angels? And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, not only is he the promised anointed son of God, not only is he the promised king of Israel, but he's the one alone who is to be worshipped. Take a look at the fourth passage he he draws our attention to. And then he says... Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The point he's making now is angels are mutable beings. They can change. But Messiah is immutable. He never changes. He is who he is. Angels sometimes appear as men. Sometimes they appear as flames of fire. Such as in the Garden of Eden, you remember the cherubim has a sword that is a flame of fire. Or when Isaiah sees the angels around the throne, they are like flames of fire that are hovering around God. Sometimes they appear like wind. And so we're told in the book of Revelation, there are angels that are told to hold back the winds until the judgment of God commences. We're told that the angels go through the four corners of the earth And like the wind, they will gather up God's elect. He's saying angels 
can take on different kinds of forms. Even the evil one sometimes appears like an angel of light. And other times he appears as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, as Peter describes him. So there are different ways that angels appear, but not the Son of God. He is immutable. He is the Son of God, and he never changes. He never loses his divine nature, even when he adds to it a human nature. He doesn't change. He's always the same. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews will say, Yeshua, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But the angels change, but not our Messiah. Therefore, he's superior to them. Not only does he say that, but take a look at this. In, in verse 6, he says, he's quoting from Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of righteousness. This is like back to Psalm 2, being a king. But now look at verse 9. He then goes on to say, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Now catch this. Look at verse 6. We won't look at Psalm 45, but look at verse, excuse me, 8. Look at verse 8. The psalmist, whom the writer is quoting, addresses God. And look what he says. Your throne, O God, is forever. But now go down to verse 9. Therefore, God, your God. So who is the God of God? God. God, right? That's right. Who is God's God? Right? Does everyone see that? One more time. If you look at verse, and you can see it in Psalm 45, I think it's verse 6 and 7. If you look at verse 8, the psalmist addresses God and says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Verse 9, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. So now he's saying he's superior because he is God. I mean, he comes right out and tells us. He is superior because he is God. And Psalm 45 is about the anointing of God, who is the Messiah of Israel. Our God is a complex being. He is not a monoistic God. He is a complicated God and not just a single solo entity. He is one God who is made up of three persons. So he's unique in regards to any other concept of God, so that the psalmist can say, God, your God will anoint you. So what is he talking about? He's saying, God, the father, excuse me, God, the son, the Messiah, your God, God, the father will anoint you with the oil of gladness. And that's what it means to be anointed, to be anointed. (laughs) That's what it means to be Mashiach, to be an anointed one. So who's the one who's anointing God? Well, God, the son, God, the father has anointed him with the oil of gladness to be the savior of the world. Can I show you one more just very quickly here? Check this out. If you look at verse 10, and if I'm not mistaken, in verse 10, he's going to quote from Psalm 104. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens were the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. So there's that immutable nature. But I want you just to turn with me. Take a look at Psalm 104. And um, we're almost done. I apologize that I'm taking a little bit more time. But but look 
Psalm 104. No, they're getting tired up here with the instruments. But look at, look at Psalm 104. This is such a powerful, such an incredible psalm. And he, sa- he, he says, first of all, um, oh, excuse me, Psalm 102. He, he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Now check this out. This is such a great psalm. He speaks of his distress. And he says, don't hide your face from me in my distress. Incline your ear to hear me. I want you to hear this because the psalmist is describing what he's going through. And see if you've gone through anything like this. He says in verse 3, my days pass away like smoke. Have you ever felt like, I'm just getting old really quick? You know, just, you know, it's just like smoke, boom, it's up. You know, like you do a barbecue, the smoke goes and it's gone. It's like you look yourself in the mirror and say, gee, wasn't I like, I was only 18 yesterday, wasn't I? But my, I'm going like smoke. Look at this. My bones burn like a furnace. Like you, ha- you ever have an intense fever where you're just, uh, you know, you just laid out. You know, I can't do it. You're just so just sweating, you know, everything. Verse four, he says, my heart is struck down like grass, having chest pains. I forget to eat my bread, lose your appetite because you're just so sick. He says, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. So you start to lose weight. It's almost like someone, you know, struggling with cancer, right? You know, you have these things. I'm like a desert owl who's just completely alone. I've never been hospitalized. Never been hospitalized. I don't know what that's like, you know, just being in a hospital and there's no one there but nurses coming and going and so on. But you just feel, I, get, I, I would imagine, you just got to feel alone, you know. Uh, I lie awake. Do you ever have such a condition you can't sleep? You're just up all the time. He says, all day my enemies taunt me. And while you're down and out physically, emotionally, you're just being scathed, you know. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You just, you just cry. You're just so hurting, you know, you, the tears just well up in your eyes. I got to tell you, you know, the last year, two years, I think I've mentioned, I'd go walking my dogs and all these stresses just come upon me. And before I knew it, here I am just crying. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm on the phone. I'm calling my friends. I say, Gary, man, just take it easy. Just relax. Everything's cool. We're with you. And I just couldn't even talk to them that it was just so, so intense, you know. And that's what he's saying. My tears mingle with my drink because of your indignation and anger. But look at verse 12. Here's where the change takes place. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered through all your generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Isn't that a great line? It's time to pity your people, Israel. It's time to open their hearts to you. It's time to fulfill your promises that you've made to Israel. Bring them back into the land. Open their hearts that they might know you, know Messiah, experience uh, eternal life. Now, he quotes from a later passage in Psalm 102. Seven times he makes reference to the sacred name of God. And that's why the psalmist will say, you, Lord, laid the foundation. They perish, but you remain. Seven times the sacred name of God is used in this passage. Now you say, well, on what basis could the writer to the Hebrews determine he's speaking about Messiah and not the God of the universe, not the Lord in total? But here's the way I think he understood it. Look at verse 16. In Hebrew, it literally says, when the Lord builds up Zion, he will appear in his glory. I remember that passage when I was a young believer. I was in a church where the pastor 
It was like every week he spoke on the second coming. We always thought, is there anything else in the Bible except the Lord's coming again? And I'll never forget when he drew our attention to this passage. When the Lord builds up Zion, he will appear in his glory. And you know, this is what we're seeing, is it not? The Lord brought his people back 1948. The Lord gave Jerusalem to his people back in 1967. The Lord is now bringing his people from the four corners of the earth, now in our day and age, at a time when there are more Jews living in Israel than anywhere else in the world. Now you look at Israel and compare any of the major cities in the Middle East, there is nothing that is so built up, so gorgeous, so modern, so professional, so right than the cities in the land of Israel. He is building up Zion. And in our day and age, more Jewish people are turning to the Lord. He's building them up spiritually as well. You know, the other day, uh, Andrea, myself, Mary Lou, and uh, Svena. I haven't seen Svena in a a while. But she's a wonderful gal, loves the Jewish people, goes to Rocky Peak, uh, Italian gal. So I I always love listening to her just for the accent, you know. But I have to ask her, when is she going to invite me over for some pasta? You know, then, then it'll be a whole different story. But um, so we went to see this and this Orthodox Jewish man, you know, there's five people in there, right? Andrea, five, six people. And we're all believers for the most part. We go in there and right in front of Andrea sits this Orthodox Jewish man. And we're thinking, what's he doing here? <laughs> you know? And afterwards, he started talking. Andrea shared more than any of us about we're Messianic Jews and so on and this, this morning or last night, Mary Lou and I were talking about the film. And I said, you know, the film didn't do a whole lot for me. I did appreciate uh, some of the comments that the filmmaker made at the end. I thought it was interesting. And she said, you know, you always complain. Yeah, you always complain. Nothing satisfies you, you know. And here, an unsaved Jewish Orthodox man entered the theater. It's like, you're right, you know. And he, stood for the, he stayed for the whole thing and the interviews afterwards. I had to think to myself... What was he thinking? What was he thinking about these people talking about Yeshua and the Savior and God's in control? And I mean, God is building up Zion. He's touching the hearts of his people again. He's building up the land. And the psalmist says, when he builds up Zion, he will appear in his glory. Well, this is what I'm thinking. The writer is thinking, the writer to the Hebrews, who will appear in his glory? Well, it's Yeshua. And that's why when he comes to this psalm, he says, this is about the Messiah of Israel. Can I just show you one more thing? I'm really sorry, Edward. I apologize. But one, one, this one last thing. We're not going to look at Psalm 110, which is what he concludes with. But Psalm 110, we spoke about. But let me just share this one last thing. Listen, I complimented you on your song. <laughs> that's right. Just, that's right. Check this out. I wanted to share this before, but I kept watching the clock. It's, I'm sorry, but look at this. Look at verse 5. He says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Then it's, Today I have begotten you. Then it says, Or again. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. Now look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now that phrase, and again, is a mistranslation. Literally, it should be whenever again he brings his son into the world. In fact, it's so clear in the Greek because the, expre- the words are inverted. It says if in verse 
in verse 5, or again, it says, De uh, pollen. But in the other verse, it says, Pollen de uh, otan, or something like that. But the point is, look at this very carefully. And the reason why the translators put it this way is because it flows. You know, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, or again, I will be with him a father, or again, let all God's angels worship him. But that's not what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. What the writer to the Hebrews is saying is this, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, or again, I will be to him a father, or whenever again he brings his son into the world, did he ever say, let all God's angels uh, worship him? In other words, that verse is saying, when he returns, whenever God made a promise of the return, to which of the angels did he say, you know, you are to be worshipped? Rather, what he's saying is, when he spoke of the return of the Messiah, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are to be worshipped? In other words, when Messiah returns, we are to worship him, is what his focus is. I didn't say that before, I just focused on the worship. But isn't that kind of cool? Whenever he uh, again has his firstborn son come, when he comes, we will worship him. Not just we, but all the nations of the earth will bow before him and worship him. As a result, Yeshua is superior to angels, superior to all, and therefore it is he that we should worship. So let me let, leave you with two things. Number one, make the study of God's word preeminent because that's where his voice is most clearly speaking. Make the study of God's word. Be diligently into the word of God. A little bit, a lot. Every morning, every evening. Just put your head in the word. Read it. You don't understand it all now. You will in time to come. Make the Bible that important because that's where God's voice speaks. And secondly, be a worshiper of God. Be a worshiper of Messiah in everything. What you think, see it as an act of worship. What you eat, see it as an act of worship. What you think, See it as an act of worship. What you decide, decide as an act of worship to God. What you give, how you serve, where you go. Ask yourself, am I worshiping God in this matter? Or am I serving myself or something less than the Messiah of Israel? He is superior to the angels before whom we are a little lower. Make him superior in every aspect of your life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.